0: If the Lord should will it, and you have me back a few times, I have about eight messages on First Peter in working through it. I, I see this letter, or at least a theme that I have chosen to pick out in this letter, is that of how do we survive in a culture, in a world that's hostile to God. Part of that is... How we identify ourselves. My title is, Who Are You, Pilgrim? And yes, there is a a touch of John Wayne there. Uh, But this is an expression that is used of us. Elect exiles. But let me ask you, who are you today, this evening? How do you identify yourselves? I saw a, a, a large pickup truck, larger than any out there. It was a big Dodge Ram 4x4. And then on the back bumper, I identify as a Prius. Now, maybe we identify by our parents or by our children. We, perhaps we identify by the jobs that we have, the things we love to do. This is what we put forward. I was identified as a photographer. I'd rather be identified as a child of God, but we can use both. Uh, Maybe you are glad to be identified by your neighborhood or the state you live in. But how prominent in your thinking is the thought of you being an alien, a pilgrim, in exile. We need to understand who Peter is speaking to. He's speaking to, I believe, both Jews and Christians, Gentiles, who had believed on Christ. He's writing from Rome probably in the time frame of 60 to 68 AD. But these are people that have believed in Christ. And some of the things we can pick up in their identity is, for one thing, they have been grieved by various trials, by fires, difficulties in their lives. They have been perhaps run out of their hometowns, and they've had to move to other places because of their following Christ. Something else that we can identify with them, they hadn't seen Jesus they weren't around when he was walking on the earth. And yet they loved him. One of the things that you'll see as you read through this letter and think about it is that no matter what we are exposed to, we mustn't forget our identity. And our identity should be, shall I say, defined By our destination, no matter what we are exposed to. To me, it seems that Peter in this letter front loads it with some very strong theological statements and some very positive things that act like the tie downs on a ship at sea. You know, the things that they lash around with a figure eight and to hold the cargo down so that as they get into rough seas, nothing is lost over. And you see, the promises of God, what God has done and God's purpose for us are like these tie-downs that hold us even in the most severe storms in our lives. And the way that you and I can prepare for the difficulties that undoubtedly will be coming our way is to know God, to remember his promises, remember all of these things because they are from the love of God for us. So who are you? As we look at these first couple verses, Peter identifies himself as an apostle, but he terms them as elect exiles or pilgrims. Well, what makes a person elect? As you look at this verse, you'll see there's a, it's actually Trinitarian, that our election has a Trinitarian dimension to it. It is, first of all, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that according is very important that the word kata it's actually pointing to what God wills, what He has ordained. It is something that is sure. What is foreknowledge? I know that you all have been educated. Foreknowledge is not God looking down the quarters of time to see what we are going to do. But it's God actually foreknowing us. And and this is something that becomes hard for us to conceive. You go back to Ephesians 1. In that letter, Paul says, He chose us from before the foundation of the world. That's hard to understand. He chose us to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ before the world was spoken into existence. But that's what he says here. It's an executive order, if you will, based on God's will. And he doesn't just choose us to be elect. As you read in this letter, you see that that election is to be holy and blameless. That election is is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In fact, I've coined a a addition, an addendum to the larger, the shorter catechism on the first question. You know the first question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, my addition is, what's the chief end of the Christian It is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chapter two. That's two sermons away. But this is what he calls us to. He doesn't call us just to be secure. He calls us to be his ambassadors here. To be as light. So that others may find the safe haven in Christ. He is Elected us to be his children. But that's not like a spoiled brat. It's not like some diplomats who feel that they are above responsibility or accountability for what they do. But it is because of God's love for us that we see the doctrine of predestination, which so many choke over. But we see that doctrine actually connecting his love with us, with the salvation we receive in Christ. God, in his love for us, he predestined us, he predestined us to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we're, we're united with Christ. And understand something, that if your understanding of your salvation is based on anything other than God's sovereign choosing you, anything in addition to God sovereignly choosing you, then it is not a salvation by grace, and he is not sovereign. He should be able, if he is the, the sovereign God, who is almighty, he can will it, and it will be. Just as he spoke Creation into existence. The means, as he says here, it is in the sanctification, or by the sanctification of the Spirit. This is how he brings this to pass. And, and and actually, as it as it speaks here, in the sanctification, in, there's this sense of being rendered holy. By the Holy Spirit, being rendered useful. And then, what is the purpose of it? The purpose is seen in our relationship to Christ. You are chosen for obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's important to see that. Our response to faith is to do what Christ has called us to do, to be what he's called us to be, to live it. But it is also under this, this image of the sprinkling of the blood, the atonement. He has elected you and I to be atoned by Christ's death on the cross, and it was proven in his resurrection. In some ways, this is is beyond uh, our understanding. The atonement points to that day of atonement when the slain animal was taken by the high priest and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And we are called for this. He says exiles or pilgrims on the way to their homeland. This is implies something else for us. Westminster is not a safe place. Where we are in our lives this day is not safe, the safe place. But it is in heaven with God. It is our destination. It is living in the will of God. We will not live on this earth happily ever after. That happily ever after is realized in Christ, in his presence. So, we this is his introduction, but even in this, there's great theology. But let's don't miss the last phrase of verse 2. I think oftentimes some of these expressions are, they're seen as greetings. Okay, yeah, he greeted us. But look what he says here. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We have peace because of the reconciliation we have with God the Father. Romans 5 uh, talks about this, us having peace with God. But why would grace be multiplied? Because the grace of our salvation is a one point in time thing. Well, the grace needed for our sanctification is something that is ongoing. It is something that we need to continually draw from. And he's writing to those who have been undergoing difficulties So Peter says to them, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May you find that grace that you need as you encounter the difficulties that you're going to face. Governments that are irrational. Maybe employers, situations that are unreasonable. Marriages with difficulties. A culture that is hostile. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. My second point. What is God's purpose? And is God's purpose your purpose? In other words, are you seeking the purpose of your life to align or to come under God's purpose? to reflect that because you see my it should be that my purpose in living now is defined by God's purpose for my life now what you and I do should be defined what God wants us doing at this point RC Sproul has made the had made the comment many times that all theology must begin and end with doxology otherwise it's just abstract theology it's intellectualism and you've seen people like that they can argue the finer points of the law they they can argue the standards there are some that are experts in Robert's rules of 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 order. You've seen people who know the theology and yet it seems like they're always arguing it. There's a lack of joy in their lives. But true doxology, true worship of God in our heart is what is needed for true worship of God knowing god understanding god and from that then offering up the worship to god is reflects a sincerity in what we do it means you understand who god is you are loving him and you are believing him because you know you know that he has first loved you As you look at verse 3, blessed be, you see, here's the doxology, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I should tell you that when he says blessed be God, how do we bless God? Well, we bless God by repeating the wonderful things that he has done, proclaiming them, telling others about them. This is the way that we Bless God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And again, that according, that uh, the Greek word kata, it is his purpose. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Paul, in his letter to Titus, Chapter three, verse five, he says, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here is his his handiwork. He caused us to be born again. He does not leave us dead in our sins. He causes us to be born again, meaning that regeneration then does precede faith. Some people argue, does faith come first? No. Regeneration has to come before having faith. It comes before there's true repentance. Because The faith and the repentance are the gifts of God. The thing that is dead can do nothing. There is no ability in a spiritually dead person to decide to follow Jesus. Their heart has to be made alive first. This is the point that he makes to Nicodemus. Regeneration causes faith in our souls. But it also triggers the realization of our guilt. And with that, because it is the Holy Spirit doing it, and the Holy Spirit uh, draws us to Christ, it shows us the mercy of God in that work of Christ. You know, How do you tell the difference between the accusations of the devil and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It may be pointing to the same sin, but the devil's desire is to cause us to despair and to fail, while the Holy Spirit's purpose in pointing out and convicting us of our sin is to cause us to turn to Christ. An illustration that's good for that, the storms of a sea, They can have two effects on a ship. They can drive, cause the ship to be driven to safe harbor or up upon the rocks. And the storms in our lives, I pick these hymns because they speak of the trials that we face, the difficulties. And those difficulties will either drive us to Christ, drive us to God because we know he loves us or if we do not have sight of that, drive us up upon the rocks. Good point for you to reflect. How have some of the difficulties in your life driven you? I would say they've driven you to safe harbor. You're here tonight. Uh, But nonetheless, we, we are challenged then notice what he says here. He calls us to be born again to a living hope. Understand about hope. The hope is the assurance of things. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But it's a hope that actually draws us toward God. And it's a living hope. It is something that is not static, but it is dynamic. But it, it is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, through what we have celebrated today in Easter. We hope because we know that he rose from the dead. And that energizes our efforts. Then he says in verse four, to an inheritance, look how he describes this, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance in Christ that cannot be corrupted in any way, will not fade away, cannot be stolen, but is kept secure in heaven for you. And, that, and it is God's sovereign power that is doing that. But that doesn't, it doesn't stop there. Look at verse five. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. What you see here is that the power of God that preserves our inheritance also secures us and keeps us and will bring us to himself. ready to be revealed at the last time. Yes, indeed. He will show us the fullness of it, where he will bestow upon us all of the blessings in heaven. And then verse 6, this is where uh, it becomes sort of like a reality check in this letter. I mean, Peter has been really affirming the security and, and why they should be rejoicing. But he shows that he's not just thinking nice, heavenly thoughts. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's just pause on that for a moment. Why or how could we rejoice while going through trials? When we're under a lot of pressure, there are times that we don't think biblically. We, we may think, wonder, why is this happening to me? Uh, we may wonder if God is punishing us, and probably have some friends who might come along like Job's friends and, and suggest that, yes, God is, is, is giving you what you deserve. You've earned this. But if we are in Christ, and I'm not saying that if we're perfect, but if we are in Christ, then as we come into, under pressure, we come to a point that we have nothing else to draw upon but him. Our troubles in Christ result in praise and glory and honor. Will result in that when he's revealed. The things that you have suffered, the things that you have endured, as you have looked to Him, will result in praise and honor. Job understood this principle, so why I wanted to read that chapter. God. Knows. Yeah. And and you saw the context of that. He was looking for God and couldn't find him. Oh, where might I find him? But what does he say? He says, God knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, Peter is using uh, an illustration here that was uh, used. uh, That was familiar in the Old Testament and somewhat in the New Testament, too. And that is this concept of God being like a goldsmith and refining the gold. As you would probably know, that the gold comes as an ore that has many impurities with it, and it has to be heated and heated again and again. And and as it is heated, uh, chemically speaking, we would say these different impurities all have their melting points. And as they would melt, they would rise to the top and that be skimmed off. And that's... As that rock liquefies, as the gold liquefies, it is in a crucible. And all of those impurities are then drawn away. And then he heats it again, the goldsmith does. And Peter's describing God working in us like this. I'd rather he, he, he could get it all one time. But I've been around long enough. He has to keep turning up the heat in my life to pr- draw off other things. Things that I hide and and hold as precious that I shouldn't. I don't know my own heart, but God does. And he will increase. The struggles in our lives until those impurities are skimmed so that he can see the reflection of Christ and that purified surface in our lives. This is the description. This is what is implied in what Peter's describing here. The tested, he then says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Understand what's being said here, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, and it's a subtle distinction, I believe, in how we should understand this. That tested genuineness is not so much that, okay, we finished the course, and now we stand here. But you see... What is going to result to the praise and honor and glory of Christ at his revelation is the fact that his work has saved us and brought us through, even though many things may have been removed from us. That's the test of genuineness. It shows and glories in the work of God in us not how well we've done, how well we've finished the course. That's important. But what would be to the praise of God is Christ's finished work seen in us. The completion of that. Because it's all about Him. Our confidence is the fact that God has predestined you in Christ to be redeemed and brought before his presence. Paul expresses this in Philippians. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is the confidence we should have. Even in the midst of the storms, the purpose of trials and afflictions in our lives, I think it is important, as difficult as it is, to see that all of these things, whether they be by the hand of man, or if you will, by the hand of nature, all of them are by the hand of God to shape us, to purify us, to make us fit into heaven you see this in other places you all know romans eight twenty eight. we know that god causes god causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose uh, Paul makes this point in in 2 Corinthians. James makes this point. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the t- trying of your faith works patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. It may be hard, but as we see God's love for us, then we come to a place where we can accept His hand upon us and giving us these things. Peter says a little bit later in chapter three, some have to suffer because it's necessary. But God is behind the suffering. Some have to suffer because it's necessary for what God is doing in and through you. And it may be that not only might you become more Christ-like in the things you endure, but there may be some around you who are impacted by God's hand upon you and seeing you respond in doxology. Jeremiah Burroughs has a wonderful book that would be a great study for you the rare jewel of Christian contentment. One of the, and it's, and it's very easy to work through because he, lists, he has these lists of things, so it's easy to keep track of what he's saying. But one of the comments that he's made that just stand out in my mind is that our tendency when we have difficulties is to grumble and to complain when the sky seems to be falling. But what we should do Say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do now? You see, the difference is we're accepting that God is in control and He wants us to respond in this. And then verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let me just pause at that. Peter's writing to people in Asia Minor that are about 30 years removed from the time that Christ was on earth. So he says, you know, in all probability, none of those people that he's writing to had seen Christ. They had not seen the humiliation of the cross They had not witnessed the empty tomb. But they heard the gospel and God opened their hearts. And because of that, they had a love for him. And we can say that there have been millions of Christians who have gone through this. As you get to the end of this this letter, Peter reminds those that he's writing to that Others are suffering along with them. And I, I and I thought as I have read that, and I've read of the suffering of Christians in communist countries, of Christians in Muslim countries. And while we don't even know what suffering's like compared to some of the, in the African countries, we don't know what that's like. Uh, we're seeing some things. But, yet they also share in those sufferings and they are standing in the faith john writes whoever believes that jesus is the son is the christ born of god born from above born of the spirit they are born again and whoever loves the father loves the child born of him this is what we see in our relationship with god God pours his love out within our hearts. Dr. Clowney wrote on this in his commentary on this. Because of this, our hearts are filled with a joy that's inexpressible. We not only have a faith in Jesus Christ, we have a love for Jesus Christ. And this this is a, a question that I will pose to people when they've asked me, How do I know if I'm a Christian? Do you love Jesus Christ? I won't leave it quite that simple. If they say they do, I I might ask how? What does it look like? How do they show it? But this is what he gives us. A love for Christ that looks beyond what we're enduring. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is not a conditional thing, but this is the result, the fruit of God's electing you and I and working in us by his Holy Spirit, changing us, taking us through this refining process. Think about it. Adam and Eve are the only ones born perfect. Everybody else had flaws and sin to boot. We have, you talk about generational memory amongst some cultures. We've got a generational memory of sin. And He refines that out in us. As you go into the next part of this chapter, we are called to be holy as he is holy. But realize he doesn't call you and I to anything that he does not intend to make us. And he will work that in us. You see, this is the confidence that he gives us. This is how he holds us. So as you face difficulties, as you face irrational city councils or state governments or whatever, your focus is upon Christ, and we serve him in submitting to him through them. You'll see this in the letter. If you were asked, well, who are you? What would your answer be? Have you come to understand why Peter gives doxology? Blessed be God. Do you see your identity being in Christ. And if you do, it means that you and I are following him. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us have grasped the wonder of what you have done in your work in saving us. Let us hold on to that and, and revel in your mercy and your grace. And Lord, as, we've, as we encounter difficulties, be they of our body, sometimes of our emotions, of our culture, as we face any of these difficulties, Lord let us be as confident as your servant Job knowing that you know the way we have taken and because your hand is upon us when we are done we will come forth as gold because of our Lord Jesus Christ we thank you and we do pray these things in his name Amen